The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning and welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your guest host, Rachel Wold, in for Kate Ebner today. Today is the first episode of our month-long series speaking with National Geographic Explorers. This is our third year straight doing this series, and it's one of the highlights of the year for us here at Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. We're very grateful to our friends at the National Geographic Society for partnering with us to produce this series. So let's get started. My guest today is Sandra Postel. Sandra is a National Geographic Explorer and Freshwater Fellow. She also directs the Independent Global Water Policy Project and lectures, writes, and consults on international water issues. Sandra is the author of several acclaimed books, including the award-winning Last Oasis, which was the basis for a PBS documentary. She's published many articles, been featured in BBC's Planet Earth program, and she's also been named one of the Scientific American 50 for her contributions to water policy. Sandra, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. It's great to be with you. Sandra, you know, I have to confess, before preparing for this show, I had no idea how many areas of our lives are affected by the status of our water system. You know, what we eat, how we get to work, how we landscape, decorate our houses, what kinds of clothes, electronics, um, and other consumer goods we choose to buy. You know, these all affect water. Can you give us an overview of the current status of our freshwater supply worldwide? Sure, I'll do my best to do that. Um, you know, you're absolutely right that that everything we use and wear and buy and make and do takes water, um, and we often forget about that. You know, we think about water when it comes out of the tap at home, and not much beyond that. But if we look at our lives, um, everything in it takes water, um, and and so that's a good bit of the reason why. You know, with 7 billion people and growing on the planet now, with everyone needing to eat and have clothes and shelter and all these things, um, we find ourselves in a situation where, you know, water's becoming, you know, more and more um, precious and scarce in, 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 in parts of the world. If you think about it, um, it takes sunshine to grow crops. Mm-hmm. And where there's abundant sunshine, there's usually not a lot of rain. And so we have to use a lot of irrigation water, you know, taking water out of rivers and lakes and aquifers to grow a lot of our food. And our food is the biggest part of our water footprint. Our diet 
is the biggest part of our water footprint. And if you look at all the water-stressed areas of the world, you know, north plain of China, northwestern India, much of the western United States, mm-hmm. um, Pakistan, good bit of the Middle East, and parts of Africa, on and on, these are often places that do need to irrigate in order to grow crops. And then we have populations moving into these areas because they're nice places to live. There's a good climate often. And so Mm -hmm. we have a mismatch, in a way, between where the water is provided by nature and where the people and crops are. And so that kind of sets us up for this dynamic of what we call water stress, where our demands for water are beginning to approach the limit of that finite supply in river basin after river basin. Great. Thank you. So water stress is caused um, by, among other things, food, uh, food production, population, environment. Um, Great. Thanks for that overview. So as I understand, you're working on a research and public awareness venture with National Geographic focused on one of the most important river systems in the U.S., and that's the Colorado River. Uh, And that project, I believe, is called Change the Course. Is that right? That's right. Change the Course. And so as I understand, the Colorado River Delta isn't the same as it was 100 years ago. Can you first tell us what the Colorado watershed was like until the 20th century? Yeah, well, of course, the Colorado is an iconic river um, for the United States. Um, It's the lifeline of the American Southwest. And, you know, it runs about 1,450 miles beginning, you know, up in the Colorado Rockies, which right now is, you know, beautiful with snowpack up there. That water will melt um, and begin to flow down through the tributaries and the main stem of the Colorado on down through the Grand Canyon. Of course, the Colorado sculpted the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. And then it will reach the, the border of the U.S. and Mexico and then flow what, what historically it would have done is flow through its, its delta and reach the sea. What in Mexico is called the Sea of Cortez, often in the United States it's called the Upper Gulf of California or just the Gulf of California. So it's a long journey from the headwaters down to the sea. And over time, as we've expanded agriculture and Cities from Las Vegas to Los Angeles to San Diego have grown and grown in population. Mm-hmm. We've dammed and diverted the river in order to supply water to farms and cities. And so what's happened over time is that um, more water has been, in a sense, given away to farms and cities than the river usually carries. And so by the time it gets to Mexico, which by treaty arrangements with the U.S. gets 10% of the river, there's virtually nothing left for the Delta. And so, you know, one of my conservation heroes, Aldo Leopold, um, canoed through the Delta in 1922 with his brother and came back and wrote about this amazing place of, you know, green lagoons and all kinds of wetlands and birds and wildlife, jaguars. I mean, amazing things that he saw. He called it a milk and honey wilderness. Um, and today, when you go down there, it's nothing like that. It's it's dried out. It's a desiccated place, mud flats, salt flats. Um, and so the, the beautiful wetlands, you know, which used to span about 2 million acres, you know, now span a very tiny share of the delta. It's been just dried out. But the thing we've learned is that it's incredibly resilient, that if you can add water to the delta, it will come back. And so this is one of the areas of the whole Colorado River Basin that changed the course is now working in. Um, we're going to be, in fact, I leave on Monday morning to go spend a couple weeks in the Delta 
um, with a team from National Geographic because a very historic event is going to start next week. Um, yes, called, and that's called the Flood Pulse, correct? Exactly, yeah. And again, we've been working throughout the basin, change the course. The way change the course works is, um, you know, we're bringing in uh, the public and encouraging them to learn about their water footprint. And we have a tool at our National Geographic website um, called the Freshwater Footprint Calculator that kind of walks you through your daily life and asks you questions about your diet and your use of energy and the kinds of, you know, shopping um, habits you have and the kinds of things you like to buy. And, and then, of course, your water use at home. And you can go through and come up with what your number is. What is your personal water footprint? Yes, and so, I've actually gone to the site and taken the quiz, and it's very eye-opening. And so I would encourage our listeners to do that as well. As you said, it's called the Freshwater Footprint Calculator, and you can find that on National Geographic's website. Um, so please, Sandra, continue with the flood pulse. What is it, and what, what are you trying to accomplish with this pulse? Well, the pulse is, uh, is, is part of a historic agreement it, it, that was signed by the U.S. and Mexico in November of 2012, um, and basically it's, a, it's an addendum to the 1944 water treaty that the two countries signed. And this, this uh, new minute, it's called Minute 319, it's a very simple name, but it has a powerful consequence, um, basically says the two countries are going to work together to give some water back to the Delta and do a five-year pilot restoration program that includes a pulse flow and a base flow. And what the pulse flow is, is an effort to mimic the way the natural Colorado flow would have occurred every spring. As the snows melt, you get a, a flood, and it, and it goes down the system through the delta and out to the sea. So the idea is, here we are, we're coming into the springtime, we're going to mimic that natural flood and release now it's a very small share of water compared to what the historic flow was so it's a it's a tiny volume less than one percent of the river's historic flow Um, but meaningful from a restoration standpoint so so the gates of of the dam down at the border will open and water will flow uh, through the delta it will take about eight weeks um, altogether to get the whole pulse flow through and and again hats off to all the conservation groups that have been working for years to make this happen because it's been a, a lot of negotiations on the political side a lot of good science to understand where the best use of that water is to allow life and growth and vegetation to come back um, you know the um, the, the reproduction of, of cottonwood trees and willows and, and the native plants that historically have inhabited the delta. So it's it's a great moment, and um, and so we'll be down there to you know to try to capture this this ecological event, this major moment in in, in ecosystem restoration, and really a political historic political event in terms of river management for two countries to come together. And, and decide to give water back to the environment in this way. It's, it's really quite remarkable. And then on the heels of this will be a base flow of water to help sustain, like a low-level volume to help sustain that vegetation that begins to come back. And that's where Change the Courses is, is going to be playing a, a more direct role, where we're helping to fund um, the acquisition of the water that will allow those base flows to happen. Again, working with, with conservation groups in the Delta. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really a great opportunity to see what once was one of the planet's great 
desert aquatic ecosystems begin to come back to life a bit more. Great. And Sandra, where will the water be coming from for the base pole, or sorry, the flood and the base poles? So the, uh, the flood pulse water, you know, is basically coming from U.S. reservoirs. It's, it's really water that, um, you know, part of this agreement, Minute 319, allows Mexico for the first time to store water in U.S. reservoirs. And so Mexico already has some water in storage, and so there's, there's the ability to use that water now for this pulse flow. Um, and the idea is that um, ultimately the water will be from improvements in irrigation systems and water infrastructure, mostly on the Mexican side of the border, to use that water and deliver it more efficiently and to use the savings for these flows. And so it's, it's sort of a win-win. You get a more efficient system um, and you get some water that you can then um, dedicate to the environment, to the Delta environment. Great. So and, it looks and, like and, international cooperation is really important part of this project. Um, what are some other examples of nations cooperating on this water management issue? Well, that's a good question. I think this is groundbreaking because the cooperation is over, um, you know, is over water for the environment. So that's that's really quite something. Um, but you know, historically, you know, we tend to think about, oh gosh, there's going to be wars over water. But there has been. Mm-hmm. Over the years, over the over the centuries, you know, a lot of cooperation around water. I think, you know, people, countries do realize that, you know, that there's a need to share, um, and and they do kind of cooperate, even when they're, you know, maybe in have differences in in other areas of their of their uh, relationships. But but that said, you know, it's it's really important. One of the lessons from Minute Three Nineteen is that it takes a long time and a lot of creativity to get to these kinds of agreements that can benefit everyone as well as the environment. And that's what's really unique about this is, you know, it's kind of moving away from the, you know, I win, you lose approach to water Mm -hmm. and saying if we work together, we can actually generate more benefits to be shared and get some water back to the environment. Um, And I think it's really important because, you know, there are in the world, you know, more than 250 rivers that are shared by two or more countries. So it's a good example. Wow. It's a good example. And the other thing about this is, you know, climate change is upon us. And and so building in resilience and flexibility in how we manage water, and that takes collaboration and cooperation and creativity. And that's another thing that this, that this whole example of the Colorado Delta and this agreement this minute 319 really helps to illustrate you know that mm-hmm. that well that thank we you sandra get- you know it's very heartening to hear that countries do cooperate on this issue um it's actually time for our first break um don't go away we'll be right back with more of visionary leader extraordinary life uh, i'm rachel wold and i'm here with sandra postel it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. 
be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hello, and welcome back to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. This is Rachel Wold, and I'm guest hosting today's show for Kate Ebner. My guest is Sandra Postel, National Geographic Explorer and Freshwater Fellow. She's also the director of the Global Water Policy Project. Sandra is one of the world's most knowledgeable experts on freshwater issues, and we're talking with her about the state of the world's water today. So Sandra, can you tell me what are some of the main human activities that contribute to water stress around the world? Well, again, uh, agriculture and, and the, 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 the fact that crops are, are very thirsty, you know, <laughs> most of our <laughs> water use around the world um, goes to agriculture. So if you think about all the water we take out of rivers and lakes and aquifers, you know, the underground sources of water, what we call aquifers, um, 70% of that goes to agriculture, um, and that's mostly because it just takes a lot of water to grow these crops. It takes about a thousand tons of water to grow one ton of grain, for example. Wow. Um, that's a huge and, number. What are some of the other foods that use the most water, either crops or animals? Well, in terms of our diets, um, you know, it, it's uh, you know, meat tends to be quite water intensive because of the way we produce it. Um, you know, a lot of uh, of, for example, beef now is grown and is, is produced in feedlots, and it takes water to grow the corn to create the feed that's fed to the cows. And so mm. a hamburger that's produced in that way can take, you know, more than 600 gallons of water to produce. Wow. Um, now that's, you know, I happen to, you know, uh, when I'm when I'm partaking of beef, I try to eat grass-fed beef, which is a different kind of production system for beef that, done in a certain way, can actually help restore the water cycle by, by using grasslands more sustainably and allowing cattle to graze on grass that then grows and pulls carbon out of the atmosphere and returns some water to the soil. So it's not that all beef production is bad, I guess is what I want to say. It varies quite a bit in terms of how it's produced. 
But everything in our diet takes a, sometimes an amazing amount of water. You know, a cup of coffee, I love coffee, but each cup of coffee can take 34 gallons of water to make. And again, that's because growing the coffee beans takes water. Mm-hmm. So it's really out in the field that the water is, is consumed, growing the crop. Um, and so, uh, and so that's an area where we can become more conscious. And for me, a big message around that is to try not to waste food. I know about a third of the food in the world that's produced is wasted. Either it doesn't get to a dinner plate or it's left on the dinner plate and wasted. And that's a waste of water that we could do something about without any, you know, change in, in benefit to us, any change in enjoyment to us, just trying harder not to waste across the board. So that's kind of a simple message, but I think an important mm-hmm. one. It could save a lot of water if we just cut out the waste. Wow. So I'm hearing that it takes over 600 gallons of water to produce one hamburger. But fear not, beef lovers, if you eat grass-fed beef, um, it actually can be beneficial um, to the water system versus corn-fed beef. Um, Thank you. That's really eye-opening. So food production is one of the main activities that contributes to the the water stress. Um, Any other big ones that we should know about? Well, um... The second, you know, big part of our water footprint is energy. Um, mm. It takes a lot of water um, to produce the energy that we use. Um, and not all this water is consumed. You know, some of it goes right back into the river it's taken from, but it still is taken out. You know, if you think about a big nuclear power plant or a big coal-fired power plant, they have to be cooled down. And so a lot of water is taken out of a river um, to cool that plant down. A lot of that will go back in to the river, but it'll be warm, and it'll have taken a lot of aquatic life. You know, in, in some cases, a billion mm-hmm. fish might come out of that river and get caught in the screens and so on. So there's a big impact to the use of water in, uh, in power generation. And also in terms of transportation, um, our calculator on the Ge- geographic website shows that it takes about 13 gallons of water to make one gallon of gasoline. So when you fill up your automobile with gas, you can think 13 gallons of water per gallon of gas and add it up. That's, that, that's a lot of water. So energy is another is another big one. So, you know, it's it's sort of good in a way to think, well, every time I conserve energy, I'm also conserving water. And the flip side is true, too. Every time I'm conserving water, I'm also conserving energy because it takes a lot of energy to move water around. So I think we can sort of double dip in terms of, you know, making some good choices if we think about getting, you know, better about energy gets us better about water. Good. Great. Um, so I want to ask you a question, and I don't mean to be intentionally negative, but I just want our listeners to get a sense of what's at stake here. What is the worst-case scenario if we, as a human race, don't change our course um, on water management? What will the world look like both physically and what will it be like for humans to live on, on a planet where we haven't managed this water stress well? What could happen? Well, a number of things that I spend a lot of time being concerned about, um, mm. and, and one of those is the what's happening to the natural environment. Um, like the Colorado, there are a number of major rivers around the world that no longer reach the sea. So we have rivers, major rivers, that are drying up from being overused, over over dammed, over diverted, and you know over tapped. 
So that's a big change in the hydrologic environment. It's a change in the in the marine environment because rivers do the important work of delivering, you know, sediment and nutrients and fresh water to the coastal zones. And that those are important areas for fisheries and things like that. So, so there's serious ecological consequences um, that have that have societal consequences to us, you know, from that. I worry a lot about um, competition for war for water, um, not only between countries and within countries, but between um, farms and cities, and between farms and the environment. Um, and, and, and the impact that's going to have on our, on our food system. Um, you know, as I mentioned, agriculture is the biggest user of water. And as water gets increasingly stressed and scarce, it's really cities and industries that can afford to pay more for water than farmers can. Mm. Um, and I worry about, uh, you know, as water gets, gets more and more uh, depleted in, in river basins, um, that we'll begin to experience water shortages through food, and that will have important social and political consequences. Um, you know, there have been a number of analysts that have thought that the what's going on in Syria and what went on in you know in in North Africa with the Arab Spring was in part tied to these spikes in food prices that can happen when you get droughts and floods and these extreme weather events on top of um, on top of ordinary uh, water stress that's making it harder to meet food needs what people what, what countries tend to do when they don't have enough water to meet their own food needs is import more food so countries like Israel and others in the Middle East that are short of water don't import water to make up the balance they import food so they don't grow all the food that, that they need they import that but not every uh, so it's who can, can pay import, the right? most for food. Right. You've got to have some countries that are still able to export. So you look at the California drought right now in the United States. California produces a lot of this nation's fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. um, and, and is a very, very important source of that. But, but that groundwater that's being used to produce that food now, especially in this time of drought, is being depleted. Um, and that's happening over and over in water-stressed parts of the world. Groundwater is being overused, and that's literally an out-of-sight, out-of-mind problem, right? Farmers, right. you know, and they have to pump more if the rains are scarce. You know, if you're in a drought period and there's not enough rain, and all of a sudden there's not enough river water to deliver to the farmers, what are they going to do? They're often going to pump groundwater if they can to make up that deficit, and that basically depletes that groundwater source. And so if you add up that, the fact that that's happening all over the world, some of our food is being produced by this bubble, right, of over-pumping groundwater. Mm-hmm. And as we've learned, bubbles pop. And so I think I'm worried about that water-food connection, that the, you know, the, uh, the scarcity of water will manifest through higher food prices, more uh, social and political conflict as a result of those higher food prices, as we've kind of gotten inklings of that happening. Mm-hmm. So one of the main things we're learning today is that water has a very real political impact. Uh, and we've perhaps witnessed that in some of the turmoil across the world in the last couple of years. Uh, well, thank you, Sandra. We just have about two minutes left. Um, but I want to ask about some of the things that we can do to ease the stress 
Um, you know, you've certainly contributed to the conversation significantly over the years in terms of highlighting possible solutions such as drip irrigation systems or reducing government subsidies that artificially depress the cost of water uh, and don't give farmers incentives to be um, conservative with water. So in your expert opinion, what are some of the most important and promising ways we can address this issue? Well, the silver lining in all this is that um, there's so much we can do to conserve water, to use it more efficiently, to share it better. Um, we've barely tapped the potential of those measures. And and so, to me, that's really the, the hopeful message in this. Yeah, that that's great we, news. There's really so much we can do. And one of them is, is the technology you cited, is drip irrigation, just to, to give one example, that... Um, you know, this is a very efficient way of delivering water to crops. You know, it's a, a piping system that's on or underneath the surface of the soil and delivers water directly to the roots of plants in just the, you know, the volume of water they need. Um, and, and we found that, you know, this can reduce water use um, by uh, 20, 30, 40, or sometimes more, uh, percent more, so you can get dramatic reductions in water use. And sometimes the plants actually yield more. They actually like getting water in, in low volumes just when they need it. And, and so plants like tomatoes and things will often yield more as a result. Wow. So you can get more crop per drop, if you will. And, and that's sort of a key thing we need to figure out how to do is how to get more value for every gallon, how to get more benefit for every for every gallon we, we use. And mm-hmm. drip irrigation is, is a good way of doing it, yet it accounts for less than four percent of our total irrigated area in the world. So wow. we can we can use more of that um, that technology. And yeah, combining so that with I'm sorry, I was just gonna say it's great that there's actually an incentive in this increased yield for people to use um, more, I would say, water like responsible technologies. Um, Sandra, I'm going to have to stop you just a moment because it's actually already time for our next break. Um, but okay. when we come back with Sandra Postel of National Geographic, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about her connection to this issue and what made her want to study water. Uh, so thank you very much. We'll be right back after this break. This is Rachel Wold in for Kate Ebner, and you're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hello, and thank you for joining us on Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. If you like the show and want to find out more about our guests, read episode recaps, and get special access to additional resources, sign up for our Visionary Leader newsletter at nebocompany.com. This is Rachel Wold, and today, National Geographic Explorer and Freshwater Fellow Sandra Postel and I are discussing the state of the world's freshwater supply, and in particular, the effort that she's a part of called Change the Course to improve the situation in the Colorado River Delta. So, Sandra, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about you, the explorer, and what your connection to the issue is. So, what is it about water that made you interested in this, want to study it, and led you to become such an expert on the topic? Well, you know, Rachel, I've been, you know, I was one of those young people that knew from a, you know, pretty early age that I just had a strong attachment to the environment that I wanted to do something with my life to make the earth a better place. So I had that sort of sense of calling for my life very early. Um, But the water piece didn't really come together till I would say when I was in graduate school and my first job after grad school where um, it's funny because I grew up on Long Island. I was a beach kid. I grew up near the Mm -hmm. ocean and I spent a lot of time at the ocean. So in a way it would have been logical for me to become an ocean conservationist. Um, but really, fresh water grabbed me. There was something about flowing rivers and and you know how water supports life on on the land on the terrestrial part of our planet and I just was very very drawn to it. Um, my first job after grad school was working on water conservation programs for cities like Tucson, Arizona, and, and, and places that had water trouble already. Um, I just found it fascinating. And it was a new, kind of a new field at that time, and mm-hmm. it, just, it just really grabbed me. Uh, and then I had the opportunity to work globally when I joined the World Watch Institute as a, as a researcher there, um, and to really take my interest in water and understand how water really affects everything globally, and look at agriculture and the environment and politics. And really, I started to think of my career as looking at the world through a water lens and understanding it that way. Great. And we definitely need experts, you know, who look at the whole world through that one issue and can help us understand it better. Um, So thanks for giving us more about your background. Uh, I know you're in the field a lot and you're about to go into the field again um, in the Colorado River watershed. How much time a year do you spend in the field doing research or monitoring the situation at, you know, at various water sites? And how does being in the field affect your perspective on the issue? Well, I, um, you know, I do a lot of writing, and so that's that's usually something I do not in the field. Um, mm-hmm. But the field work is so important because just being able to get, you know, get into these areas where we're working and see the rivers and talk to the farmers and talk to the conservationists um, and to, to understand the system as a whole is just so critical to um, feeling both inspired about the work and really feeling like we can communicate 
um, and, and, and do our part to make these, um, these projects come together and then communicate to the public about them. So the field work is really crucial. I mean, there's no substitute for actually being there. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean for you to be an explorer, you know, be named an explorer by National Geographic and actually work with them on this Change the Course project? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I mentioned I've had this this sort of calling to work on the environment since I was young. And literally when I was 15, I remember it was sort of a um, a moment in my life where I, I was trying to make sense of things. And I thought to myself, mm-hmm. you know, the best thing in the world would be to work with National Geographic on this. And, <laughs> and now and you are. Really in a, and now I am. It was really sort of all I knew at the time. You know, being a young person, it was sort of uh, an organization and a magazine I knew. Um, but here I am. And so in a way, it's, it's, it's all come around to feeling like I'm one of those lucky people that's sort of living one's dream, you know? You are. What do you recommend to young people who might be interested um, in water and another environmental issue? What's the best way to, you know, live the dream like you are in your career? I think, you know, it's it's a, a couple of things, at least in my case. Um, it's finding your passion. Um, and then, and this takes some time, it's finding your niche. You know, mm-hmm. we're all good at certain things. Um, and finding a way to marry your passion with what you're good at and what you enjoy doing is really important. Because I think you're going to be more um, both satisfied and have more influence in the world if you combine those two things, if you find that passion and you find that niche that allows you to fulfill that passion in a way that really works for you. So that, that's, and that's, that can take some time and some trial and error, but it's worth striving for because I think that really creates, you know, both a life that has meaning and a life that has a lot of satisfaction. Thank you. That's great advice. Uh, let's switch gears again and go back to talking about the change the course effort. Um, what can people do to help out with this campaign? Well, Change the Course um, really brings together the public and businesses and conservation groups to do two things. Um, one is to shrink that human water footprint, and the mm-hmm. other is to restore water to depleted ecosystems on the planet. And we're piloting this in the Colorado River Basin. Um, and and it, it's really showing the two big things we have to do if we're going to have a more sustainable and secure water future, which is, again, shrinking that footprint and restoring the environment. And so the way Change the Course works is we invite people to make a pledge to do something in their own life to conserve water, to shrink their personal water footprint. And we promise, Change the Course promises, for every pledge that's made, we'll return a 1,000 gallons of water to a depleted portion of the Colorado River Basin. Wow, and just we'll make- the pledge online? Yes, and you can, you can take that pledge online at changethecourse.us. That's our hub for change, the Change the Course uh, initiative, changethecourse.us. Um, and it allows you to see what we're doing and to make that pledge and become part of our pledge community. We now have um, nearly 50,000 people in that pledge community. And what makes the pledge, uh, what makes us able to say we'll return 1,000 gallons of water for every pledge is that we have businesses joining with us, companies joining with us, that also want to balance out their water footprint. And mm-hmm. What are some of those companies, Sandra? So 
we have our our um, some of our our lead sponsors are uh, Silk, the maker of soy milk, um, mm-hmm. and they're based outside of Denver, Colorado. Uh, Coca Cola, which has a replenish program, they're trying to return water to the environment to balance their water footprint in making their products. Uh, mm-hmm. Disney. Uh, 1% for the Planet is, is bringing in some of the 1% companies, including uh, New Belgium Brewery and um, uh, Patagonia. So some really good companies that have taken on water sustainability as an important part of their business. And through Change the Course, they can balance out their corporate water footprint by funding these restoration projects. And so it's it's really a way to bring the public and corporations and, and conservation groups together. Um, and it's it's really quite a unique um, effort, and it's really off to a great start. Uh, we're, this year we'll be returning, I would say, by the, by the fall or, or winter of 2014. We'll have returned 2 billion gallons of water to depleted rivers in in the Colorado River Basin, including the Delta, where we're on, um, where we're about now to return about a billion gallons to help with this Delta restoration that's taking place. So we've worked wow. in the Headwater Rivers, as well as the Desert Rivers in Arizona, the Verde, for example, and then on down to the Delta. So it's making a difference. And, and, the, and the thing about Change the Course is, you know, we're trying to show that if we put our minds to it, we can actually have healthy rivers right alongside healthy economies. You don't have to sacrifice one for the other. Mm-hmm. So we're interested in projects that shows if we use water more efficiently, if we manage water better, um, nobody has to lose in that situation. You know, you can actually have a healthy river, a healthier river, right alongside agriculture that's just as well off as before. Um, so in the Verde River in Arizona, for example, we helped to fund um, the upgrade of an, irriga- an old irrigation system that allowed farmers to get the water they needed but keep more water in the river. It was a smart gate that allowed them to monitor the levels of water, and instead of diverting the whole river into the ditch, they could keep some in place, keep some in the river. So you have a healthier river, and you've got just as much irrigation and agriculture, excuse me, just as much agriculture as before. So, mm-hmm. so those kinds of, you know, win-wins in a sense are, are especially interesting projects for us. And, and I think we're trying to show those as ways that, that say, if we did more of this kind of thing, we can get to that future we, we desire. Yeah, you know, I think that that's a really important uh, point to point out, which is that it's not necessarily a zero-sum game. You don't have to uh, give up a healthy economy, as you just pointed out, uh, in order to be more conservative with water. So that's a really good point. Um, So I just want to repeat the website for those of us who are listening. Um, That's changethecourse.us, and you can go online and make a pledge to do something in your life to conserve water. Uh, And for every pledge that they gather, um, companies uh, will band together and they're pledging to contribute uh, to return over, I think it was a thousand gallons of water for each pledge. Um, So definitely go online and do that. And Sandra, if if we have some listeners today who after listening to this show, you know, they might go take the freshwater footprint calculator quiz online. They're going to pledge at Change the Course. And so now they have to come up with ways to actually do it, to actually conserve water. Can you give us some tips on some of the best ways we can conserve water in our daily lives? Sure, and and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because as part of that uh, water footprint calculator 
at nationalgeographic.com slash freshwater. Um, we also do give tips, so you can get a whole range of different ideas and tips from going through the calculator. But some oh, that come to mind, um, you know, off the bat, are, are thinking about our diets. Um, mm-hmm. And if there are ways we can, you know, move toward a bit less water-intensive diet, that can be a helpful thing. Um, again, turning off the lights when we're at home saves water because you don't have to use the water to produce the electricity. Um, and certainly at home, you know, thinking about our outdoor landscapes. In terms of our home environments, especially if you're in a drier location, um, the water that we're using to, you know, irrigate the lawn, to irrigate our, our, our landscapes in general, is often half or more of our home water use. Wow. So particularly if we're in the West, um, mm-hmm. you know, turning to more native landscaping, native plants rather than thirsty green lawns in places like Phoenix and, you know, Albuquerque and Denver, you know, where they right. don't really belong. So that can mm-hmm. save a lot of water. Well, thank you. Believe it or not, it's time for our next break. But just to recap, some of those tips were make sure you're turning off the lights when you're not at home and unplugging appliances. Uh, Pay attention to your diet. Um, Go online, take the quiz and find out which foods are very water intensive to produce. Uh, And then your outdoor landscaping water use that often accounts for half of all water use in a home. Um, Try to think if you can landscape your yard with some native plants, especially if you live in the western U.S. Uh, Thanks so much, Sandra. Um, For our listeners, stay with us, and we'll be right back with more Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with me, your guest host, Rachel Wold, and also National Geographic Explorer and Freshwater Fellow, Sandra Postel. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hello, and welcome back to the final segment of today's episode of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your guest host, Rachel Wold, in for Kate Ebner today, and I'm here with Sandra Postel, Director of the Global Water Policy Project and also a National Geographic Explorer. Sandra, what does the next frontier look like in terms of innovative ideas and technologies to better manage our water resources? 
Um, give us a peek inside your head. You know, what are the leading edge scientists and policy experts like yourself thinking about? Well, I think the frontier is really going to be marrying efficiency technologies with information technologies. Mm. Um, you know, we have um, a lot of good technologies on the shelf or under development to help us use water more efficiently, like drip irrigation, for example. And when we put those technologies together with information technology, like sensors in the soil or real-time weather monitoring, and combine those things so that we can deliver water in just the right amount when it's needed, um, where it's needed, at the right time, we can actually really get a lot more efficient use of our water. So, so bringing those things together, and there are some examples like this developing where farmers, for example, have sensors in the field that they can monitor on their iPhone mm. and know, you know, and, and deliver the water through an efficient drip irrigation system. That's a big change from, you know, sending lots and lots of water, you know, down a field in kind of a flood type of situation, right? Flood irrigation or furrow irrigation. This kind of thing would be much, much more efficient. And so, so moving, moving toward that, using our, our information technology and our efficiency technologies and bringing them together, that's, in a sense, the project I mentioned on the Verde River. We, we sort mm-hmm. of did that. It was a smart gate. It was a sensor um, that allowed us to know, allowed farmers to know what the water level was um, and, and allow that, that to, to be um, diverted more, more effectively. So there's a lot of potential there. Great. So it sounds like being more precise with our water use is important and that, you know, pretty soon we, instead of thinking of farmers out there, you know, with their tractors, we might be thinking of farmers on their iPhones using an app um, to monitor their irrigation systems. That's great. Um, You know, Sandra, you've written about the need for a new ethic regarding the way humans think about water uh, and that the essence of this new ethic is moving away from a utilitarian approach to water management, how can we extract use from water, and towards a more holistic approach. Can you explain this new ethic further for us? Well, the most fundamental thing about water is that it's the basis of life. Mm. You know, water is not just a commodity. It's very different from oil and gas and the other the other commodities that are important in our lives. It's 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 the basis of life, and there's no substitute for it. We're not going to shift away from water to something else. You know, hopefully we're going to shift from oil and coal and gas to solar and renewable sources, but we can't shift away from water, right? So it's it's essential, right. and it's and it's the basis of life. So to me, the ethic is is really about saying everything alive needs to be given enough water before some get more than enough. And so Mm. beginning to return some water to nature to keep the web of life alive and going um, is so critical. And to applying our our best technology and our best thinking to meeting our needs, our human needs, in a more efficient way so that we can balance out with nature again and begin to give water back. And I think that's what the ethic is. It's saying that, yes, water is life, so everything needs to be given the amount of water that it needs to survive. Thank you. Thank you for drawing that distinction for us between water and other commodities. I had never thought about it that way. Uh, Great. What, you know, you are so knowledgeable on this subject. What is it that you know that you maybe wish other people didn't know about water, like in a common misconception or a surprising fact? I think it's how much water it takes to, to, to keep our lives afloat. Yeah. So it's sort of jaw-dropping to me. 
Um, I didn't even mention like things like our clothes. You know, I mean, we have a closet full of clothes. Well, every every cotton shirt in that closet takes about seven hundred gallons. You know, so and I and I say this not to leave people feeling guilty. It's not about mm-hmm. feeling guilty. It's about awareness, so that we can make some different choices. Uh, that's really what it is. And I, I think those kind of numbers were jaw-dropping to me the first time I realized how water-intensive our everyday lives are and the things that we buy and use. So it's both, you know, it's an awareness and then sort of an empowering thing to realize that we can, in fact, be part of the solution. That's right. We don't have to just feel bad about it. We can actually do something, which brings us back to the Change the Course project. Uh, and I know you said you're working with some private companies, but there's three organizations, I believe, who are partnering to make this happen. I know National Geographic is one of them. Can you tell us who the other partners are? Yes. Uh, so National Geographic and, and our partners in this are um, the Bonneville Environmental Foundation, which uh, has created a very interesting tool called the Water Restoration Certificate, which is mm. kind of the first gallon-for-gallon gallon way of, of balancing out your water footprint by returning water to the environment. So their tool, the Water Restoration Certificate tool, is very central to change the course, helping companies understand how much water they're returning to the environment to balance out their water footprint. It's kind of an important accounting mechanism, right, that mm-hmm. makes this work. And our other partner is Participant Media, uh, the media company that has produced so many films that many of us have seen, um, because one of their films had to deal with fresh water, and they wanted to engage the public around freshwater issues. So they are a very important partner of ours as well in Change the Course, in, um, in dealing with uh, social media and reaching out um, to, to the public and communicating what Change the Course is accomplishing and offering tips about ways we can conserve and continuing that conversation with our pledge community, which is so important to us. Thank you very much. So these water restoration certificates, will they be awarded to companies who return water to the system? Is this something that perhaps someday companies will, you know, boast about on their website? They have X many water restoration certificates, hopefully? Yeah, so each each restoration certificate is a thousand gallons and and so um, that's the accounting mechanism that's used in these restoration projects. And so it allows change the course to report back to our company sponsors that by virtue of investing in this project, you have offset X number of gallons of your water footprint. And again, many companies have their own sustainability goals. And so that's a really important part of this campaign for them, that we can actually track the water that's restored and report that back to them so they can understand that they've balanced out that much of their water footprint. Got it. So tracking is an important part of the project, too. Um, Well, Sandra, thanks so much. How can we follow along um, with you and your progress um, both in the the flood pulse in the Colorado River Delta um, and in the future, because you mentioned that it's just a pilot and you might take this project elsewhere. So where can people go for updates? Yeah, so definitely check in at changethecourse.us. Um, once you've taken the pledge, then you're part of the pledge community, so you'll get periodic emails and text messages um, from Change the Course that keeps you up to date on what our projects are accomplishing and what we're doing. So that's a great thing to do, changethecourse.us. Also checking in with nationalgeographic.com slash freshwater, where we post our videos and our stories and our photo galleries from all the work we're doing in the field. 
So that's really a, a really important place to stay up to date on what our projects are and what they're accomplishing. Um, and then just becoming part of Change the Course um, by pledging, again, will we'll kind of keep you abreast of, of, uh, of, of what we're doing in the field. We'll be down in the Delta now for a couple weeks, the next couple weeks, and um, I hope to be able to write a couple blogs. I host National Geographic's freshwater blog called Water Currents. That's also at our National Geographic web- website, um, mm-hmm. and I'll be posting from the field. Um, about what's happening during the pulse flow and um, and continue to, to update that way as well. Thank you. Well, we've come to the end of our time, uh, but Sandra, I want to thank you for joining me today uh, and for opening our eyes to a very important issue. I know that I'm definitely going to go take the pledge and figure out my ways to you know reduce my water use. Um, and I know that our, our listeners and I will all be watching the status of your work in the Colorado River Delta um, and tracking your water currents blog and you know wishing you well on that. So thanks again for being with me today. Thank you, Rachel. It was really nice. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with me, Rachel Wold, and my guest, Sandra Postel. Thank you for joining. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.